The year was 1521, April 17th, Martin Luther appeared at the Diet of Worms, where the Roman Emperor Charles V had called him to give an account and ultimately to recant of his teachings and writings. Luther was commanded by the Roman Emperor, the Roman Catholic Church, to recant of his holdings to the Scripture. That salvation was by faith alone. The next day, April 18th, 1521, 500 years ago to this day, Martin Luther took the stand. He had taken the previous evening to pray, to read Scripture, and to seek counsel from his closest friends. He took his stand and he famously stated, My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. For Luther, it was neither right nor safe to go against his conscience. Not because of his conscience's sake, but because his conscience was held captive to and by the word of God. Again, that was 500 years ago to this day that that Luther said those words. And in the Lord's providence, today we will begin a study, a journey through the book of Galatians. Galatians is Paul's epistle where he so clearly and so pointedly argued for the doctrine of justification by faith alone. The very same fight that Luther fought 500 years ago. So today, after um, some introduction and some overview, we eventually want to work our way through verses 1 through 5 and, and consider Paul's apostolic greeting in this opening section of this epistle. And I want to begin today by reading verses 1 through 10 because they kind of set the context and the tone of Paul's letter. So let's read Galatians 1, 1 through 10, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. This is the word of the living God. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another Only there are some who are disturbing you and who want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, and so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men? Or of God. Or if I'm striving to please men, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant 
or a slave of Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you now as we turn our attention to the proclamation of the truth of your word. Lord, as we even see in the text before us today, the authority is yours. The truth is yours. The work then must also be yours. We pray that your spirit would open our minds to the truth before us. Lord, may we have humble hearts to receive and apply this truth. Lord, may we also have boldness as we live indeed in an evil age where all kinds of of attacks are being waged against the truth of the gospel. Lord, we need your spirit to put strength in every stride, to give grace for every hurdle so that we may run with faith to win the prize of a servant good and faithful. So that is our prayer, that the Spirit would come and put strength in our, in our stride to illuminate our minds and to set a resolve in our hearts that we would stand for the truth, that we would stand for the truth and nothing else. Lord, be glorified in our time together. Pray that you would instruct each one of our hearts through your word. Lord, show us our sin. Grant us to repent and to turn and run and to flee to Christ in faith and repentance. Lord, this is your work to do, and we ask for your help. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. So this book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the churches at Galatia, should be considered as an apostolic treatise. It is an apostolic declaration concerning the doctrines both of salvation and the doctrine of Christian living, the doctrine of sanctification. From a broader view, we cannot separate these doctrines that are before us in this epistle. For salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and it is the sole source of our sanctification. But likewise, sanctification is a necessary outworking of genuine, true, saving faith. As we consider these ideas with regards to this epistle, this letter of Paul, it would be unwise, and frankly, it would leave out major portions of this letter if we were to try to isolate either one of those ideas within the context of this letter. For he speaks of salvation being by faith alone, but he also speaks of the fruit of the Spirit. He speaks of being joined to Christ. He, he speaks of, of, of living a life that is not in submission to the flesh, but is against the flesh and in submission to the Spirit and the Word of God. So from a high-level perspective, looking at a high-level overview, Paul is writing to clarify these doctrines the doctrine of salvation by faith apart from works, and to ensure that such doctrinal teaching does not lead to the abuse of God's grace rather than leading to growth in holiness. Doctrinal teaching that does not lead to and result in holy living is truly not 
biblical doctrine. Holy living, then, that does not flow from biblical doctrine is surely not biblical sanctification. The two go hand in hand. They cannot be separated, and Paul does not separate those in this letter. This this letter was indeed written to the churches of Galatia, as Paul says in verse 2. It is to the Galatians. Galatia was a region and then eventually a province in the area of Asia Minor. Asia Minor is modern-day Turkey. So this was a, was a large area of land, and um, Scripture shows us when these churches were planted. Paul had a pattern of planting churches. After, after he was converted, he went on three missionary journeys that we have in the book of Acts. And what Will just read was that first missionary journey, Acts 13 and 14. And it was there in Acts 14 that these churches in Galatia were planted. Paul would go and plant churches. He would come back and encourage them, come back to teach them, come back to see how they were doing. And when he couldn't visit visit them, he would often write to them. He would write them the letters, and and that is how we have so much of the New Testament. It was spirit-inspired letters written by the hand of Paul to the churches that had been formed through his ministry throughout those years, throughout those missionary journeys. Galatians, of course, is no different. We We read of the forming of those churches in the towns of Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Those were towns in the region of Galatia, and there were possibly other churches that were formed, but we know that at least those four towns were in this region, and there were those four churches that would have received this letter. In um, chapter 2, Paul references, he recalls the events of the Jerusalem Council. If we had read ahead to Acts 15, we see the Jerusalem Council where the church leaders in Jerusalem and Paul and Barnabas and Peter, they come together to discuss a doctrinal issue. And Paul refers to that here, and that likely happened in A.D. 49. So that that places this letter to the churches of Galatia somewhere in the early 50s A.D. This is um, one of Paul's earliest letters that is recorded for us in Scripture. As Paul went about on his missionary journeys, he often, typically, I think almost always, would begin his ministry in a town in the Jewish synagogue. If there were Jews there, those were who Paul went to first. He would be in the synagogues day and night, preaching of Christ. So surely in these churches in Galatia, there would have been many Jewish converts many Jews who had heard of Christ and converted to Christianity. But they were not the only Christians there. Paul was the apostle of the Gentiles, as he wrote in Romans chapter 11. And after he began preaching in the synagogues, he would go preach in the streets or among the academics or anywhere where he could find a a crowd to listen to him, and he would preach Christ. And so these churches would be formed, and they would have Jews who were converted. They would have Gentiles who were converted. And they would be a a mashup of various cultures and and people and other religions. And this mixed ethnicity, mixed background church, was ultimately these churches that were formed with, with mixed cultures and mixed religions and mixed backgrounds was ultimately the reason that Paul wrote this letter. As we go through it, we'll see that that Paul was writing because there were Jews 
who were willing to give ear to the Judaizers who came in and preached that you had to add the works of the law to your faith to be saved. Paul had given them clear teaching about what the gospel was, that you had to believe in Christ, and believing in Christ, you will be saved. Not believing in Christ and then being circumcised, but believing in Christ and Christ alone. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. However, as always seems to be the case, when the Lord begins to do a work in a group of people, the attacks of Satan only increase. False teachers come in and seek to pervert the truth, to twist the truth, and to lead people astray. False converts pop up, they rise up, and they give ear to those false teachers and false preachers, and they come alongside of those people who twist the word of God, and they support them. And when that happens chaos breaks loose because we have but one standard and it is the word of God. And when that one standard is not taught and is not preached and is not lived out, you have diverging viewpoints. In Galatians 1 verse 9, in chapter 2 verses 4 and 5, and then in Galatians chapter 3, we see it was false teachers who snuck in, who disturbed the saints, by distorting the truth of the gospel. Those are Paul's words, not mine. And then they eventually sought to lead the Galatian Christians astray into a works-based salvation. Surely, friends, you understand the danger of such false teaching. They were seeking to lead Christian converts into what was another gospel. Paul makes clear in chapter 1, as we will look at over the next few weeks, that those who twist the gospel are not preaching a slightly different gospel, but they are preaching no gospel at all. We either have the biblical gospel or we have a different gospel, another gospel, no gospel. And so it's in the face of this opposition that Paul and the Galatian church were striving to stand firm. This was an evil that was inspired by Satan. And it was an evil that was played out by men who, as Paul described, stood condemned before God. Now, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, because there's plenty to look at in chapter 1, but as we get to chapter 2, we'll see that it was not just these new converts who struggled with the teaching of the Judaizers. Even Peter, the great disciple who we saw at the end of John 21, was recommissioned by Jesus himself. Even Peter struggled with this teaching. And when Peter began to act wrongly and believe wrongly, even Barnabas, Paul's right-hand man, even Barnabas began to follow Peter's example. And friends, just to pause, and we'll talk about this in more depth in the coming weeks, but just to pause and think about this, this shows the primary danger, the primary reason for concern when men of strong reputation begin to believe and teach and propagate error. Because when that happens, they destroy not only themselves. They destroy even those who are mature in the faith. Like Mike was talking about earlier, that is why we have to stand firmly on the truth. 
because such heresies will come in, and it's not just the immature that heresy can affect. It can be every believer. We all must be on guard. We all must be staunch defenders of the truth. Now, thankfully, by God's grace, Peter and Barnabas were ultimately restored to gospel faithfulness. They were restored, though, friends, because Paul boldly and lovingly confronted the error of their practice and their doctrine. That's what must take place today in so many instances. Those who hold firmly to the truth must boldly, lovingly, patiently, and graciously confront both error in living and error in doctrine. In the wisdom that I think only the Holy Spirit can give, Paul did not get so caught up in addressing these errors that his personal pendulum of conviction swung to the opposite extreme. Again, you think about this. He is fighting against those who would bring works, who would add works onto what was necessary for salvation. And you could see and almost expect how somebody confronting such ideas, of the, such heretical ideas of salvation by grace and works potentially swing to the opposite end. They would fall into the idea of licentiousness, lawless living, that you are saved by grace through faith, and that's it. We don't want to talk about good works. We don't want to talk about holy living. You could understand how that would happen, but that's not biblical salvation. We are not saved by our works, but we are saved unto good works. And in the wisdom of the Spirit, Paul spends a significant amount of time throughout this epistle speaking about what true conversion looks like. He speaks about being clothed in Christ, walking in the Spirit, walking not according to the desires of the flesh, and displaying the fruit of the Spirit. That is a work of God. That is a work of the wisdom and knowledge and understanding of the Holy Spirit to guard and protect and keep Paul on that straight and narrow path. And by the Lord's grace and the wisdom that only the Lord can give, we must strive for the same, friends. As we work through this letter, it will be over the course of of weeks and months. And we have to keep this big picture in view because these first several chapters, Paul will hit strongly on the idea of justification by faith alone, by by faith in grace and apart from the works of the law. But we've got to remember the big picture. We get to Galatians 5. You all know Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. We get there, so don't lose sight of that. We must strive to retain this balance as we study this epistle, and we must strive to retain this balance in our lives in general. We must not let controversy or confrontation or difficult doctrines cause us to become unbalanced in our application or our understanding of the scriptures, of these doctrines, and of how we apply the scripture. We must be balanced. Balance is a biblical principle. There's not a verse in the Bible that says, therefore shalt be balanced, but it is a biblical principle. It plays out in the six chapters of Galatians, among other places. So we could continue on in um, overview and introduction, but hopefully this will su- suffice to give you an understanding and a roadmap of where we're going as we follow 
Paul's writings. We see that serious errors and distortions of the gospel rise up. Paul confronts those errors. He confronts them with the truth of Scripture. And he keeps a strong balance throughout not to lose sight of the opposite errors that his teaching of the truth could perpetuate. He doesn't lose sight of the fact that that we have salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works, plus the call that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works. He keeps those ideas wedded together throughout this letter. So with our remaining time, I want to look at verses 1 through 5. Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and consider Paul's greeting here. From these verses, we see that Paul begins this letter really the only way reasonable, the only way that the Spirit could possibly lead him to begin a letter that is so polemic, a letter that is so passionate and so doctrinally based. Paul states that his apostolic authority and his message are from God alone. He states that his authority and his message are through Christ alone. And he states that he is writing to those who are partakers of a common fellow salvation. So verses 1 and 2, we see the apostolic authority of Paul, the apostolic authority of Paul. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. So we know the background of Paul. We studied Acts not long ago. We, We saw his dramatic conversion, that he was a great keeper of the Jewish law. He'd been a leading persecutor of the Christian church before his conversion. We know that after that conversion, while he was on the way to Damascus to persecute more Christians, Paul then became the greatest preacher to ever walk the face of the earth. He was the, the most bold, truth-telling man that we really, I think, have witness of. I'm, I'm sure those statements could be debated, but Paul was bold in his stance upon the truth. He was fully devoted to the cause of Christ. He devoted his life to the work to which he had been called. The Galatians surely knew this testimony, for Paul had planted these churches in Galatia, and Paul had a well-known reputation. He was well-known before his conversion for his persecution of the church. He was well-known after his conversion for his bold and sincere stand upon the truth. The Galatians knew that he was a man of God, The Galatians knew that he was devoted to the gospel and that he was striving to plant and build up churches through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So with that background, Paul begins his greeting by declaring his apostleship. He says, I'm an apostle sent by God the Father, sent through Christ, and sent not on my own accord. Many of you are familiar with the term apostle, Paul, an apostle. One appropriate definition of this term is one who is sent forth with orders. So it's one who is sent. It is is a a sent one, but specifically it's one who is sent forth 
forth with specific orders. That is what Paul's declaring himself to be. He is a messenger, and he is a delegate sent from the Lord, and he was sent forth with specific orders to complete a specific task. He was working to a specific end, the specific end of proclaiming the gospel and starting churches. It's interesting, then Paul makes this point that he is sent from the Lord, and then he says that I'm not sent through the agency of man. I'm not sent from men or through the agency of man. For this can often be a telling sign of false teachers. Friends, this is important in our day to understand and be able to spot false teachers. Their authority is often derived by man-invented ideas, and their authority is only in an earthly form. They are self-platformed, so to speak. They are self-appointed. Think of our political leaders or, or those typical cultural or societal leaders. Governmental leaders, of course, are divinely appointed by God. We know that from Scripture. But, but those who lead in culture and society have no divine appointment. They have no divine authority. They have no divine message. To whom does the Lord give authority? The Lord gives authority to his church. The Lord gives authority to the message that is declared by men who are set apart by the church. The Lord doesn't vest authority in men, but in the message that men proclaim. Galatians 1.9, again, as we read earlier, As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. But even if we, back up to verse 80, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we preach to you, he is to be accursed. The authority is not in Paul. The authority, Paul says, is not even in the angels. He says, if I or an angel or anyone else preaches a gospel different than what you have heard, he is to be accursed. The authority is in the truth of God's word. Politicians have no authority. Politicians have no right to tell the church what the church can and cannot do. That is not in the scope of what the Lord has entrusted to governmental authorities. Social and cultural influencers have no authority. They may have influence. People may look to and listen to them for some strange and bizarre reason, but they have no authority given from God. Seminaries, seminary professors have no authority. The Lord entrusts the authority of his message to those whom he calls to declare his message. Again, the authority is found in what is proclaimed, not who proclaims it. The authority of the proclaimer of God's word is not in themselves, but in God's word, for his word endures forever. In verses 11 and 12 of Galatians 1, Paul says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. 
The authority is because Paul received a direct word from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Friends, we can wield that same authority because we have that same revelation. It is God's written revelation, his word. So simply stated, the authority and the message belong to God. The authority of the church and the message of the church belong to the Lord. Notice also that Paul's apostleship, um, his being sent from God, is also a defense in the apparent attack that was being waged upon him from the Judaizers. They they seem to be attacking, as we study through this, you'll you'll kind of start piecing this together. They were waging this attack that Paul was self-willed, that he was self-appointed. And Paul will give a long defense of his ministry over the the course of chapter 1 and 2. But he strongly affirms in verses 1 and 2 that his calling is from God. His apostleship was given directly to him from the Lord, and he invokes the brethren who are with him. They affirm that same truth, that his authority is given to him by the Lord. Now, in thinking this, you might ask the question, couldn't a false apostle in Paul's day, we know that apostles have ceased today, but can a, a false apostle then or a false teacher or a false minister today make this same claim? Couldn't they say, hey, all these people who are with me and I myself say that I am sent from God? Well, yes, they could. And Calvin, even 500 years ago, spoke of this. He said, I admit that they can claim apostleship from God. But Calvin makes a a very interesting point. He says, but they do so in a more haughty and disdainful style than the servants of the Lord venture to employ. They want that actual call from heaven to which Paul was entitled to lay claim. As I said before then, a a sure mark of a false teacher is that they are self-appointed. They are self-platformed, and their claims to authority are often done in this more haughty and disdainful way that Calvin mentioned. They they have this puffed-up sense of their own authority, of their own calling. One sure way to spot a false teacher is that ministry is a burden to that person rather than a distinct privilege and mercy from God. If you see these people who, who carry around a huge burden because they are called to be a minister of the Lord, that is a, a telling sign that they are a false teacher, that they are a false minister, because the Lord gives a distinct privilege and blessing to those to whom he calls to lead. It is a mercy from God. That's what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 4. He talks about the mercy that was given to him. He was once a persecutor of the church. He had nothing in him or about him that would set him apart to be a minister of God. But God, in his rich mercy, called Paul out and set him apart. That was why Paul served so faithfully, because he saw, mercy, he saw ministry as a mercy and a privilege and a gift from the Lord. Calvin also made the important distinction that Paul is referencing apostolic 
authority here. This is a distinct reference to the highest rank in the church. Paul is claiming to be equal to Peter and to the other disciples. An apostle is one who had directly seen Christ, who was directly commissioned by Christ. Men are not able to appoint themselves to such an office, to the office of apostle. The office of apostle was created and appointed by Christ and Christ alone. A church may set apart a man to be a gospel minister. That authority is vested in and given to the church. But a church cannot even set aside a man as an apostle. That is something that only Christ could do. And Paul's saying, Jesus did that for me. Jesus called me out as an apostle. There is a distinct weight and authority that comes by being one sent by Christ with orders from Christ to proclaim the message of Christ. So Paul tells the Galatians, excuse me, He tells the Galatians that he has this unique calling, that he has this message and authority that were given to him directly by the Lord. And then verse 2, as I mentioned a moment ago, he interestingly invokes the brethren who are with him as those who co-sign to the contents of his letter. Now, he's not <clears throat> giving these men authority as, um, as writers of Scripture, He's not saying that they share in his same apostolic authority, but these brethren who are with him have witnessed and verified the things that Paul is writing about. They've witnessed his authority. They've witnessed the truths and the errors that he is going to confront. And as we've noted before, Scripture always establishes truth on the basis of witnesses. No one person can stand up and say that this is the truth that I have. Scripture always says that it's established on the basis of two or three witnesses. And so Paul says, look, here's my witnesses. These brethren who are with me co-signed to my statement that I am an apostle set apart by Christ and Christ alone. So such must be the nature of how we make arguments and how we defend the faith. We must do so under the authority of the Lord and under the authority of his word. And we must do so with the confirmation of witnesses. If we're going to confront error or heresy, we need to have those who have our back, who will come alongside of us and say, yes, so-and-so or such-and-such did promote and propagate this error. That's the biblical way. Paul's preparing to defend the gospel which he proclaimed which he held so dear. And he desired the Galatians to see and to respond to the truth. He prepared his readers for this argument that he was about to make by by telling them that his authority was from the Lord, that his message was from the Lord, and that those who were with him would confirm this message and his ministry. Paul realizes here, as he later wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 10, that though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought 
captive to the obedience of Christ. Paul was preparing to wield the divinely powerful weapon that he had, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Paul was preparing to wield a divinely powerful message to these Galatians. Before we finish the introduction, we have to look at verses 3 through 5 and see that he also speaks of the common salvation that he shares with the Galatians. Read along verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from the present evil age so that the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Surely you can see what Paul's doing here. Read closely enough, you see God our Father who, and Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Paul has completely leveled the playing field. The authority belongs to the Lord. And the Galatians are called to the exact same salvation to which Paul has been called, to the exact same salvation that Paul is proclaiming. Friends, there is no distinction. There is no hierarchy. There are no privileged There are no oppressed. This letter is from one redeemed saint to another group of redeemed saints. There is no distinction. Paul is writing under the authority that God granted him with the authority of God's word, but he shares in a common salvation with these, his fellow saints. So let's look just very briefly at these statements and descriptions, and we'll understand the commonality that we share, because this is a commonality Paul shared with the Galatians, and it's a commonality that every saint of Christ shares with one another. Firstly, he said, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We see then that Paul and the Galatians and every saint from eternity past to eternity future share the same God and Father. They bow their knee to the same God and to the same Lord. There's no God of the rich and a God of the poor. There's no God of the Jews and God of the Gentiles. There's no God of, of this people and God of that people. There is one Spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, and through all, and end all. That's what Paul told the Ephesians in Ephesians 4, verse 4 through 6. He told them to strive after, and quote, to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace because of this common Lord, this common faith, this common baptism. Ultimately, Paul will tell the Galatians the same thing. Preserve the unity of the faith by preserving the purity of the gospel. Preserve the unity of the faith by preserving the purity of the doctrines of justification and sanctification. There is no unity of the faith without the purity of the gospel. 
Hear that again. There's no unity of the faith without the purity of the gospel and a true understanding of justification and sanctification. That is where our unity lies. That is where our unity is found. Paul then says that the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Talk about leveling the playing field. Paul clearly says that Christ gave himself for our sins, for your sins and my sins. We have all fallen. We all fall short of the glory of God. The, le- the playing field is completely leveled. There's no more equalizing fact than this. The Galatians struggled to be unified as Jewish converts and Gentile converts. But Paul says, you are all sinners. You are all converted by the work of Christ. You are all made one with Christ. You all started at the ultimate bottom. You will all end at the ultimate high, the ultimate heights. You will all end as one with Christ. Be unified today. What is the purpose then of Christ giving himself for the sins of both Gentiles and Jews? Paul says, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. Calvin says that the Lord rescues us from this evil age when we are separated from the world. Calvin said, for so long as we are of the world, we do not belong to Christ. There's a singular and common work of the Lord in all believers. We are called out of the world to be holy, and we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to pursue that holiness, to pursue and to grow in sanctification. Simply stated, when we allow the world, that is, the philosophies and the lust and the evils of the world to infect our minds and heart, we greatly strain our mutual separation unto Christ. We are separated from the world, and being separated from the world, we are made one with one another. When we allow the the philosophies and the evils of the world to infect that separation, we infect and strain our relationships. Christ died so that we would be called out. Christ died so that we would be rescued and separated from the evil of the world. It's also worth noting here, I think, that the death of Christ is the only means by which we can be separated from the world. You cannot be separated by any other means than the proclamation of the gospel of Christ by believing in who Christ is and what he did. The world, its systems, its ideologies, its philosophies, they are all completely broken. I'd add on to that, they are all completely useless when it comes to salvation. Lives are only able to be redeemed and souls regenerated by the power of the proclamation of the gospel and the powerful working of the Holy Spirit to bring a dead soul to life. Proclaiming the gospel must be our great work and our great focus. Say that again, proclaiming the gospel must be our great work and our great focus. We are not called to cure the ills of society around us. We are called to do that, but the only way we can do it is by proclaiming the gospel. 
There's nothing that we can do. There's nothing that man can come up with that will trump the work of God in and through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit bringing a dead soul to life. If you want to destroy every division among us today, you go preach Christ. You let the Lord bring a dead soul to life. The Spirit come in and indwell and empower that person. And then divisions will eventually cease. Does that mean that as soon as a person is saved that that you will never again have strife with them? I I think we could all testify, absolutely not. But it does mean that, that that playing field has been leveled. We've all realized that we're sinners and we're working towards a common goal of Christ's likeness. That is where unity is found. Finally, then, in verses 4 and 5, Paul tells the Galatians that they are called to this mutual salvation according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. This is the chief work and the chief end of salvation in every soul. There is not one person who is eternally saved by anything but the powerful working and will of God. Likewise, there is not one person who is saved for any purpose other than the glory of God in Christ Jesus. Salvation is not focused on cleaning up your life. Salvation is not to the end of fixing your problems or granting you any kind of favor or blessing. Salvation is for God's glory. Salvation is so that his power is put on display. And his power is displayed when he redeems souls of wicked sinners and brings them to life in Christ. So Paul tells the Galatians, Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, he says he joins with them. They're those who are united under God. They're united under God as sinners who are rescued by Christ according to the will of God, all for the glory of God. Now, is this not the way to confront error and division in our world? Paul proclaims that there is no authority other than God and his word. There's one authority and there's one salvation. That salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. In an age of division and strife, even among Christians, we we must know that our only possible hope to unity is by commonly accepting the authority of God's word and joining together under the common salvation, under the common banner of Christ who unifies and sanctifies. There's but one hope to unity. It is living your life under the authority of God's word and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, bringing about your sanctification through the scriptures. Don't believe, friends, don't believe the divisive message that so many are proclaiming and propagating today. Don't believe that there's a black church and a white church or a black church, a brown church, a yellow church, a green church, or this church, or that church. There's but one church. There's not an urban church and a rural church. There's there's but one church. There can be no man-made distinctions. We are all one in Christ. Don't believe what you hear. Take what you hear, compare it to Scripture, and see if it aligns with God's Word. Paul says in Galatians 3, verses 27 
28. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. You were baptized into Christ, and now you are all one in Christ. So may it be our aim as we study this epistle to all be made one in Christ Jesus. And we do that, friends, by clothing ourselves in and with Christ. We do that by making no provision for the divisions and the desires of the flesh. Dear friends, strive to be made one with Christ. Let's close in prayer.